Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. So today, I want to talk a little bit about principles as far as the Qur'an is concerned. So not necessarily principles that we take from the Qur'an, but rather principles that we have as we approach the Qur'an. So how, what's sort of the framework uh, that we, we equip ourselves with as we look to the Qur'an you know, for guidance and, and benefit? So the first point is that we consider the Qur'an to be the eternal, uncreated word of God. What we say in Arabic, Kalamullah al-Qadim. And what that means is that the Qur'an for us is essentially one of the traits, uh, one, of the, one of the sifat, one of the traits of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So like we say Allah is Kareem or Allah is Rahman, Allah is Rahim, you know, one of the traits of Allah, the 99 names of Allah as we call them sometimes. This Qur'an being the speech of God is outside of, of time. Now, the Qur'an when we say that the Qur'an is the eternal, uncreated word of God, it doesn't mean that it's, it's that's it. There's no other uh, words of God. But what Allah chose to reveal to us uh, in this moment in time was the Qur'an. So when we look at the Qur'an that way, that it's the eternal, uncreated speech of God, that means that when we come and we read it, it's as if it has been revealed at that moment for us. So it's not a book of history. It's not a book that 
what, that begins at some time and ends at some time. It's outside of the realm of time, just like Allah is outside of the realm of time. So Allah doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. And therefore Allah's speech is also outside of time. So when you read like the Fatiha, it's as if at that moment it was revealed for you because you're, you're, you're attaching yourself to something that's outside of time. Now that's completely different than you know, Orientalists who study the Qur'an and they want to see it as a historic document and they want to see it as a, as a, a document in time uh, and they want to find the grammatical mistakes of the Qur'an, you know, th- you know, the things that the Orientalists study. So we approach the Qur'an completely different. You know, it's revelation for you at, at that moment. And one of the things that we, we benefit from this approach is that you know, nobody can duplicate the Qur'an. No, one's been able, no one has been able to imitate the Qur'an. There have been attempts in the past. But you know, no one's invented like a surah that's become widely memorized that's somehow like inserted in the middle of the Qur'an to confuse Muslims. Like that's never existed. Even the people that have tried to imitate the Qur'an in the past, the imitation of the Qur'an, it's like the Qur'an itself. They just use different words from different places. But there's nothing, nothing original. It really is an original uh, document if you want to use, use th- that word No one's ever imitated the Qur'an Forged the Qur'an uh, Erased parts of it And tried to pass off the redacted version As the full It's never happened before in the, history of, in the history of mankind So for us That's because it's Allah's eternal speech The second thing We, we equip ourselves with As we approach the Qur'an Is that it's protected Allah says, Indeed, we have revealed the Qur'an and we alone will protect it. So again, the compilation of the Qur'an at the time of the companions, uh, the companions had memorized the Qur'an and there were some parchments that were written. You know, as the Prophet would, would, would recite revelation, you know, some of the companions would write down this verse, write down that verse, but it was primarily something that was memorized. And this lasted throughout the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then when it came to the Khilafah of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he brought all of this together into one Mus'haf, you know, one, one Qur'an. But without the dots of the Arabic letter and the vowels and things like that. And when we came to the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu, for, for a host of reasons, the idea was, no, we want to bring the Mus'haf together, but we need to put the dots on the letters we need to put the vowels, you know, the markings, so that even non-Arabs would be able to read the Qur'an. And it was all compi- compiled in, 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 you know, five or six volumes, the Uthmanic Mus'hafs. And from that time until this time, there has never been a discovery of any manuscript of the Qur'an for any century that's any different than what we have printed in the Mus'haf today. It's all the same. Maybe there was a scribal error. You know, the scribe would make a mistake, but when there's a scribal mistake in the, in the, on the Hamish or in the, the edge, they would, they would mark that this was a mistake. So the way books were written in our tradition is that we keep the mistakes in the text of the book and then we make the correction and we put it on the side. So when you study manuscripts, you know, that's... So of course, I mean, humans can make mistakes, so there could be an scribal mistake, but it would have been corrected. So think about that. There's, not, there's no mushaf that's been printed or manuscript that's been found of the Qur'an except that they all corroborate each other. It's all the same. 
So it's protected. I mean, that's amazing. You know, there's no versions of the Qur'an. Uh, I believe, I think it's Hemingway, who in one of his novels, he had like dozens of, of ends to the novel. He kept writing. Uh, I think it's a call to arms. Is that Hemingway? A call to arms? A call to arms. I think he has like 40 or 50 conclusions until he, what? Farewell to arms. So farewell to arms. Uh, 40 or 50 conclusions until he found the right one that fit and then put it. And I think in the JFK uh, library, presidential library, all of, or most of those versions exist. But we don't have that in the Qur'an. There's no like 60 versions of Surah Al-Falaq until you know, the scribe got it right. No, it's just one revelation, one version. And this same Qur'an is what everyone has memorized. Even if you don't understand it, you memorize it and you use it in prayer. And that's one of the miracles for us of the Qur'an, that even people that don't understand it, memorize it, the whole thing, you know, in its entirety. So it's a book that's protected. Number three is as we approach the Qur'an to interpret it, we interpret the Qur'an as an absolute text. So when we read a verse, we see this as an absolute text, devoid of place, time, circumstance, and people. Because it's God's eternal speech. So I don't read the verse and I just see the verse as specific to the story in which it was revealed. Or to the companion that it was revealed regarding. Or the battle that it was revealed about in a certain time. Yes, that exists. We call that asbab in nuzul You know, why God revealed the verse or what happened in the seerah at that time. But when I come now to interpret the Qur'an, I don't see it as it is stuck in time. Because we said the Qur'an is outside of time. So I see this as an absolute, you know, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. This is an absolute statement by God. In the name of God, the most merciful, the most compassionate. It doesn't mean that God is merciful and compassionate then, and He's not merciful and compassionate now, or this is only for Muslims, so on and so forth. So we see it as an absolute text. Number four is when we come to interpret the Qur'an, we interpret it only from the Arabic language. And this, for us, this is important because we're a, a non-Arab you know, Muslim community. And this is important for us to understand. The Qur'an was revealed in the Arabic language, in a specific type of Arabic language. And for us to understand what those words mean in those verses, in those chapters, we need to know what those words meant at the time for the Arabs during Revelation. So to understand the Arabic, we go backwards, not forward. So when a, when a word was revealed, and it's like a weird word or complex word or archaic word, we go to the Jahili Arabs and we say, how do they use this word? How do they understand this word? And that's why the Muslim scholars themselves, they're the ones that preserve the Jahili Arabic literature, if you think about it. So the Jahili, and we even call it Jahili literature, Shar al-Jahili in Arabic, the, the Jahili poetry. This was preserved by the Muslims on purpose because it's through understanding this original language that we know what these words mean. So that, what that doesn't mean is I can't say, well, the meaning of this word has evolved or changed. So, and I use what, what, I, what I want it to mean today to make tafsir. That we don't do. But we go backwards, as it were, when we try to interpret the meanings of the Qur'an. Now, does this mean that you can't read the Qur'an in a translation and benefit? No, of course. You, you, we all read it in, different, in our 
the language, language in which we are comfortable. You know, the Qur'an has been essentially translated in almost every major human language there is, over and over, multiple, multiple times. But it's going to be a personal connection that you make. It's not going to be what we call tafsir. You're not going to derive, you know, some big meaning or some, you know, absolute um, principles from other than the Arabic language. So people that want to study the Qur'an and be able to do tafsir, they're going to have to learn Arabic at some point, in some stage. That's very important. And we shouldn't see this as... Sometimes when people hear this, they feel sort of left out. This is not about being left out. Uh, Allah's mercy is, is beyond our comprehension. So any approach that we make to the Qur'an, we're going to benefit from. But here we're talking about like the formal task or job of tafsir. To do that, you have to do it from the Arabic language. You can't make a sharia based on the English translation of the Qur'an. Or you can't make the sharia based on the Urdu translation of the Qur'an. It's not going to work. Because when you lift the meaning of the Qur'an into another language, you're going to lose all the things that we've just talked about. It's no longer the eternal, uncreated speech of God. It's no longer you know, absolute text. We're just using a modern language approximation of one of the meanings of the Qur'an. Number five is there have been many, many generations before us who have done this. This is not new. And we have to look to what people before us did, how they understood certain things, and the things that the generations before us understood that they all agreed on, what we call ijma, consensus, that's something that we have to take into consideration. A lot of what maybe we can call modernist Muslims or um, you know, modernist, I guess maybe is the right word, is they assume somehow that they, they have discovered something new that no one's thought about in the Qur'an before. And usually, usually like 90% of the time, that's not the case. Because there's precedent. We, even in, in the law, we say there's precedent. So what the, our precedent, we call this ijma', the consensus of the community before us, the community of scholars, not just the, you know, it's not like a public opinion poll. We're talking about the consensus of the scholars. They read this verse, they all understood from this verse this set of meanings. So if everyone has a consensus on a, a certain set of meanings, we can't go against that. We have to put that into our consideration as we benefit from the Qur'an. And this probably is the main, and this is just like a tangent, but this is probably the main problem with this sort of modernist, um, reformist, whatever word you want to use, adjective you want to use, approach to Islam, is that they don't understand that there is precedent, and at the same time, maybe unbeknownst to them, it's a position of arrogance, because we assume that we are the only ones that have figured this out, we are the only ones that have this challenge, we are the only ones to, to think about what the Qur'an means, and we're so, so, somehow enlightened, and everyone before us was dumb, or something like that, and that's very dangerous, because that's not our tradition at all. Our tradition is extremely respectful of the past. We must take into consideration everything that's been written about this verse or this topic before we seek to, to add to it. That's just like a, a little tangent. Number six. As we take precedent in the tafsir, we also take our precedent from the past in general from all Islamic sciences. So as we approach the Qur'an, we need to use all the tools that we have from all of the Islamic sciences, whether it's hadith or the Arabic language sciences, uh, uh, logic, uh, rhetoric, um, even philosophy, 
legal studies, usul al all of that stuff, theology, all of those things, we bring them together because everything that the Muslims have invented from the intellectual side are all tools simply to understand the Book of God. That's it. Everything that we have in our religion is somehow serving to understand that. Even our art, the art of calligraphy, or the art of recitation, all of this is simply to embellish, to uh, exalt, to honor the script, the Arabic script, which for us, us is the script that in which the Quran has been written. Even our art form is, it all goes back to, to the book. So when we come to do tafsir, it's like a serious thing. It's, 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 a, um, it's, a, it's a task that involves many preliminary uh, things, such as knowing some of these, these other sciences. So we, can't, we don't want to read the Qur'an abstract uh, of those other sciences. Number seven. When we read the Qur'an, fundamentally we see it as a book of guidance. It's not a history book. Uh, it's not a chronology of some event. Uh, it's a book that has been given to us to guide us. And that's very, very different perspective, for example, uh, of somebody who you know, has hate, who hates Muslims or Islam and reads the Qur'an and, and, and takes out these verses and attacks Muslims with it, you know, this Islamophobic sort of way. They have a, they're not seeing it as a book of guidance. So whatever's inside them, when they open the Qur'an, that's what they're going to find because they're approaching the book with that. So if we see the book as a book of guidance, when we open it, we're going to read everything as a form of guidance. So we're, all, we're going to be obsessed. What does this mean? How does this guidance? What do I do with this verse? What does it really mean? How do I apply it? You know, it's very different perspective than if I approach it you know, to, to argue with the Muslims or to scare people from Islam. So we see it fundamentally as a book of guidance. So for us, of course, the Qur'an is, is, is very positive. And when we read it and we hear its verses, uh, we see this as a, as a message, you know, a, a, a call for us to pause, to reflect, to think about it, etc. Number eight is the wonders of the Qur'an never cease. So because it is the eternal, uncreated speech of God, that means that its miracles are endless. So the more you read the Qur'an, the more you reflect on the Qur'an, the more you study the Qur'an, the more you become impressed and, and dumbfounded by the wonders that you find in the Qur'an, either from insights or either from linguistic nuances or either from meanings. And, and that's why the study of the Qur'an, the tafsir of the Qur'an has never ended. You know, every generation they add you know, these multi-volume tafsirs, you know, one generation after the other. It's not like something like grammar. There's nothing more to learn about grammar. If you want to learn grammar, there are set books of grammar. You go study it. And no, no one's discovered something new in grammar. You know, or very rarely, or even in like hadith studies, you just you study what was written in the past and that's it. And now you're well versed in the in the science of hadith. But tafsir is very different. When you approach the Quran to draw meanings, they're never they're never ending. And the people that have insight, like Imam Shafi, for example, he he read the Quran like 50, 60 times over the over one weekend, over like a two day weekend to be able to find the proof for ijma' in the Qur'an. Now that story, you know, because we're Imam Shafi'i, we, always, we have all of these Imam Shafi'i stories. That story, every time you, you hear it, I mean, first of all, how, how can you read the Qur'an that many, many times in like two, three days? You know, man, the man didn't sleep. But 
the fact that you can keep going back to it that many times until you, you pick out that one thing that you're looking for. And when you read the verse that he uses to prove ijma, it doesn't have the word ijma, it's not like a you know, prima facie, but when you, when you read the story, you're like, ah, yeah, that's, that's very clever that he uses this verse to find the proof in the Qur'an that, we have, that consensus of the community is binding, for example. So, you know, when you read the tafsir, it's like never-ending, layers of meanings upon meanings, so the wonders of the Qur'an never end. Number nine, we approach the Qur'an with a level of creativity, in the sense that when we read a verse or hear a verse, we always ask ourselves, how do I apply this verse? What can this verse mean for me? What does this verse mean vis-a-vis -vis my life now or our situation here, etc.? So we see the Qur'an as an absolute. I mean, we all believe in this because we're believers. We see it as something absolute. So when we receive it, we want to say, how do I implement it? Rather than the other way around, where this is a historic book that uh, Muhammad made up and therefore, so when you approach it that way, your, your relationship is completely different. But for us, no, it's different. We know that this is pure revelation. It's been preserved. So therefore, how do I implement it? How do I, what does it mean for me? Does it mean that I'm doing something wrong? But how does this jive with this, set, this other verse? Or how does this jive with this set of hadith? Etc, etc, etc. So we're always trying to be creative in our understanding. So we're always asking questions to help us understand what is meant by that for us now. And this happens every generation. But there's nothing new for us. It's not new. And it will continue to happen, you know, until the end of time, inshallah. And then the last number 10 is the Qur'an has within it, even though this is a series of first principles, the Qur'an itself has its own, it offers us its own set of meta-principles. And those are perhaps for people like us maybe where we want to start. Um, so for example, the Qur'an talks about, you know, no soul shall bear the burdens of another. لا تزيروا وزيروا أخرى. This is like a meta-principle that God has revealed to us, not just for us, but for everybody. That you can't, you know, blame somebody for something that somebody else did. Or you can't, you know, pass on the sins of the parents, do not pass on to the child. This is a meta-principle that, that can have so much impact for us in how we deal with everything. And I'll just throw like a, something very controversial, but we're not going to talk about it because I don't want to talk about it. But, so for example, when people, uh, you know, the impossible conversation of, you know, the Israeli-Palestine uh, conflict. What does this principle mean for that? Because there are Israelis that have been there now three, four generations. Now they didn't choose to be born there. They didn't choose, they didn't leave country A to go there and steal something from another people, There's, their paradigm is very different than maybe early settlers. And there are settlers now, of course, but I'm talking about right now, there are Israel, people that are born in Israeli towns in, in, in the state of Israel that are third, fourth, maybe even fifth generation. So we can't forget that Allah reminds us, no soul bears the burdens of another. And we have to be able to deal with people that way. Now, I'm, I'm not making any statements, but I'm just you know, throwing something out big that we can think, yeah, well, have we ever thought of that? No, we think of it all as this side is good and this side is bad. That's it. We never make the differentiation between these things. Another like meta principle, Allah Ta'ala tells us if you are mindful of God, 
God will give you sustenance. When you're in a difficult situation, if you're mindful of God, He'll show you a way out and He'll give you rizq from somewhere where you didn't expect. So God throws this out there as a meta principle, as a reminder to always be mindful, to not give up. So these meta principles for us are maybe where we can start rather than like the nitty-gritty of the tafsir and the fiqh and all of this kind of stuff, if we dig, if we, if not dig, it's the wrong word, if we, if we pause at those principles that we find in the Qur'an that are for all human, you know, these are declarations for all, Ya Yohannes, God says, oh people, well we're people too. Or Ya Ahl al-Kitab, we're Ahl al-Kitab too, sometimes we forget the verses of Ahl al-Kitab, they apply to Muslims too, aren't we Ahl al-Kitab? Of course. So those verses apply to us too. So when God says these big Broad statements, khalifa. You know, I'm giving, I'm sending a vicegerent on earth, meaning us. Well, what does that mean? The vicegerency of the human being vis-a-vis the environment, vis-a-vis society, uh, vis-a-vis a plural society, etc., etc. So when we approach the Quran, we want to pause on those meta principles. And those meta principles become not just guidance for us, but also principles that we can have other people join us with. There are, there are common values. So these are not values that are only for us, but these are values that are there in general. In general, that nobody bears the, the sins of somebody else. Well, we want to extend that to everybody, and we want everyone to join us on that. Let us not, you know, just because somebody is born out of this difficult situation, let us not pass on the burden of those people to those, to those children, etc., etc. So these are just some thoughts, just these ten thoughts about principles of how we approach the Qur'an, and uh, hopefully it will maybe get us thinking that when we read the Qur'an, we can benefit uh, from it. Wallahu a'lam.